I often have people say to me, can you tell me about the chain of events or what is going to happen in the Lord's return and all of that, the doctrine of what we call eschatology, which is a big word meaning the doctrine of last things, last things. Well, this is a message on what happens when we die, but it also, I'm going to walk you through all the future events and sort of briefly, sort of a flyover 30,000 foot in the air view, uh, just a general overview, but I want you to have that because people, if you're not dealing with it on a continuous basis, you kind of sometimes wonder, now what comes after that? What's the next thing? So hopefully I'll be able to, to help you with that. In the book of Luke, chapter number 16 and verse 19, stand with me as we read God's Word, please, today. Luke 16 and 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple, which was expensive clothing because in those days the purple dyes were so expensive to obtain that only the wealthy wore purple. He was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously. He ate the best food every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus's name, by the way, is God is my helper, God my helper. Lazarus was laid at the gate full of sores. The word laid, if you'll look it up, is a very interesting word. It means cast. He was cast. Like somebody who cared for him, his family member, just came and dumped him off at the rich man's door. And he was full of sores. His body was covered with sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dog. Only place in the Bible tells us the name of a dog. Moreover. <laughs> Moreover, the dog came, and he licked his sores. Y'all have already been blessed today, haven't you? I can tell. It stirred your souls, didn't it, there? Okay, well, we'll leave moreover for another time and talk about him later. Uh, some of you old-timers will remember one time my dog died, and I preached a sermon on moreover, the dog died. And uh, I got it right out of the text, didn't I? But at any rate, uh, the story of the rich man Lazarus. A couple things you ought to know about this. People refer to this as a parable. This is in all probability, well, in, in surety, it's not a parable. Jesus never said it was a parable. The, others, the other parables, he said they were parables. Also, Jesus never used the name of a person in a parable. He uses the name of Lazarus here in the parable. And this is a true story, I believe, that the Lord used to tell us about what happens when we die. Thank you. You may be seated. I have a little custom at a funeral service here that's held here either in the chapel or here in the auditorium. I can't always do it at the funeral homes that I have, I gather the family together just three or four or five minutes before the service uh, begins. And we gather out there right outside that door and the, the uh, funeral directors shut the door. And I gather the family around me and I have a word of prayer. I pray for their comfort. I pray that God will use the service to bless them and to bring, uh, you know, to assuage them of their grief. 
recently, about four or five weeks ago, I conducted a funeral here. The family gathered out there. The doors were shut, and uh, we were ready to come in, and I, gathered, I was ready to gather the family and have a little moment of prayer with them. The mother of a little boy, a little boy about this high, she came up to me and said, Pastor, can you help my little boy here? He's all confused, and he's very, very afraid of what's going to happen. He doesn't understand at all about death. He doesn't know what happens when people die. And this, in this case, this was his grandfather. And so I got down on one knee because the little boy was all hyperacting a little bit. And I just took his face and my hands and I said, look right at me for a moment, son. I want to help you. And I put my hand then on his shoulders. And I said, now listen very carefully because we only have two or three minutes. And I told him what had happened in the case of his grandfather's death. I just walked him through the events of it as I'm going to do you, except that it's going to last a little bit more than two or three minutes. You understand. But I said, let me tell you what happens when a person dies. And I want to give you the adult version and a little longer version today from the scripture here as we think about this parable, not this parable, there I said it, we think about this story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, as, as I've already noticed as we went through the text, wore the very finest of clothing. He ate the finest of food. He lived in a large house. He had all the toys. He had all the latest model cars and all the stuff that people back in that day collected. He had everything. And then there was this poor man, and he had gotten sick. He was covered with sores all over, which would mean, of course, he was unable to work. Whoever was trying to help him just sort of put him on the corner, cast him out, dumped him on the corner by the rich man's house, hoping that he would be able to beg a few crumbs there, and he would be able to sustain his life. And the rich man never gave him any crumbs. He was so stingy, he let him sit right there. There's no account that he ever helped him. Then the man died. The rich man, or the, pardon me, the poor man, Lazarus, died first. And then a little bit later, the uh, rich man died also. Now, take your program and you can begin to follow me from this point on there. And you may want to add a few notes in there. I want you to notice, first of all, that both the rich man and Lazarus both went to the same place. We need to get that in our mind before we, so we can really understand what happens after death. Let's read now, beginning in verse number 22. It came to pass, the beggar died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died, and he was buried also. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Notice, they're in the same place. Now, they're not together, but this rich man lifts up his eyes, and he sees Abraham in the distance, and he sees Lazarus, the man who's laid at his gate every day and begged from him. Here's what you and I 
forget as New Testament believers. Before the Lord Jesus Christ died, nobody could go to heaven. Let me repeat that again. Before Christ died, no one could go to heaven. Why was that? Because all of those Old Testament saints who were believers, there had been no sacrifice made that was adequate to pay for their sin. And God could not accept them and their sins into heaven being a holy and a just God. And so before Jesus died, with no payment made for sin, there was this place called Hades. Hades was a compartment, a space at the center of the earth. I'll show you that from the Bible in a few moments. And this was where the spirits of the dead both believers and unbelievers went upon their death. And so Hades was divided into two compartments, if you will. On one side of Hades, there was paradise. This is what the Jews call it. This is what the scripture refers to it. On the other side of Hades was this place referred to as torments right here in the text of Luke chapter 16. And so paradise. The Jewish people, by the way, call that Abraham's bosom. That's why it's referred to that here. That was a Jewish idea with the idea that since Abraham was the father of their nation, that every Jew went to paradise and he went there and was met by Abraham, the originator of the nation. And then the unbelievers and the wicked people went to what is what they referred to as torments. Now, so the, when Lazarus died, he was buried, and it says the angels carried him to the paradise side of Hades, a pleasant, beautiful place, no doubt. I want you to notice one thing there, too. He was carried by the angels. I said to that little boy, that when a Christian dies, when a believer dies, like his grandpa, that he doesn't die alone. Christians never die alone. Christians are carried, I believe, up to heaven now, paradise then. They're carried to heaven by the very angels of God. I think that's one of the duties of angels, that they carry our spirits and our souls into that other world. And so when he got there, notice from the passage here in verse number 24, he speaks to Abraham. Abraham is there because all of the Old Testament saints are there. They've offered the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and so on, but there's been no final and ultimate sacrifice made for the sins of every person. And so he's met by Abraham. He calls him Father Abraham. And you notice there that they can see. And so the rich, man, the rich man then dies, and he goes to the torment side. He's not met by Abraham. In fact, he calls out to Abraham in verse number 24 and said, Can you send Lazarus back, the man who I wouldn't give a crumb of food to, but would you send him back that he could put a drop of water on my tongue? That's strange, isn't it? That shows you inequity and injustice. I wouldn't give him a crumb in this life, but I'd like for him to come and give me some water in the next life. And what does Abraham say to him? 
He said, I can't do that because there's a great gulf, a bottomless pit that's fixed between paradise and between torments. I can't cross over into the place that you are now residing. And so we see this great bottomless pit, this great gulf that's established there. And so, so let me review that because I want to make sure that you get that real clearly. Before Christ died at Calvary, at the center of the earth, there was this place, Hades, the place of departed spirits, divided into two compartments. Paradise, where the righteous and believing went upon their death, their spirit and soul went there, and this place, torment, where the spirit and soul of the wicked and the unbelieving went. And so you see this demonstrated here in this story of our Lord. I want you to notice a couple other things about the text here, because it tells us that after death, several things occur. I told you I was going to speak about what happens when we die. On the other side, when people die, they are, number one, conscious. I want you to see that. Both of these men are conscious, Lazarus and the rich man. Secondly, both of them can see. He see the rich man sees Abraham and Lazarus over on the other side of the great gulf that's fixed here. We know that they can feel. and we, In fact, he thirsts. He says, can he just not come and put a drop of water upon my tongue? We know they can hear because they're communicating, they're conversing here. We know that they can speak because there's a record of what they said. Worst of all, they can remember. In eternity, memory will be very much alive. People will remember what happened here upon the earth. Now, not long after he told this story, the Lord Jesus Christ died. He went to the cross, and he paid for the sins of the world. Go with me real quickly. Keep your hand in Luke 16, and, but go to the book of 1 John chapter 2, and I want to show you one little quick verse of Scripture, but it's so important because we have all this teaching going on today, some of it by people that I admire and respect in other ways, but I, I don't like this teaching that's so prevalent today, and that's all. And that's the teaching that Christ only died for certain people. It's called a limited atonement. Now, let me tell you the verse that the limited atonement people can never get around. It's 1 John chapter 2, and it's verse 2. And he, referring to the Lord Jesus, is the propitiation. Man, that's a, that's a big word, isn't it? You don't hear that out on the street, do you? You won't hear that on the news. But he is the propitiation. Circle that word propitiation. Draw your little line out there somewhere. And it means satisfaction. Jesus is the satisfaction. He paid the debt for our sins. He satisfied our sin debt. And not for ours only, but also, here's what I want you to notice. Who did Jesus die for? He died for the sins of the whole world. Say that with me, the whole world. Who did Jesus die for? The sins of the whole world. And so Christ came some years, just a few years after he told this story. 
He went to Calvary. He went to the cross. He paid our sin debt. He died for the sins of the whole world. He died for Lazarus' sins. He died for the rich man's sins. He died for the sins of the whole world is what the Scripture teaches. Now, when he died for the sins of the whole world, that's all those Old Testament people who are in paradise that we talked about a moment ago. And Jesus paid their sin debt, which had not been paid up to that time. And so he provided forgiveness for Abraham, David, Noah, Adam, all the people of that time in history. He died for their evil thoughts. He died for their evil words. He died for their evil deeds, the same as he did for us. And not only did he die for the sins of the whole world, but he provided righteousness, righteousness, which he imputed unto us. He gave us credit for. So in the mind of God, not only am I forgiven of my sins, but I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, he took my sins and he gave me his righteousness. Isn't that wonderful today? The Bible talks about the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ being the possession of every believer. So after he paid for our sins, then he took the souls that were in paradise, righteous people of the Old Testament age, and he took those people up to heaven. Now go with me quickly to the book of Ephesians, and I want to show you where the Bible says that. He emptied out paradise that day, or sometime between his death and at his resurrection. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth, and it goes on and describes that Jesus went there into Hades, took the souls and spirits of the righteous people of the Old Testament, and he took them up to heaven. And let me, let me show you how important this is. Do you remember when Jesus was dying on the cross? And almost the last thing he said is he turned to that thief beside him. And what did he say to him? Today you will be with me where? He didn't say heaven. It's paradise. Your spirit will go there because I have not yet finished redemption. But do you remember he was standing at the tomb on resurrection morning, Sunday morning, and Mary came and wanted to worship him, and she must have wanted to put her hands on him. And he said, touch me not, I have not yet, what? Ascended to my father. I haven't gone and paid that final price yet, but I'm in the process. And apparently he did it that very day because after that, he never said that again. So Old Testament saints went to paradise and then they went, they were cleaned out of paradise and taken to heaven. And today we don't have to worry about paradise because when you and I die, we go immediately to heaven. Our soul and spirit right into the presence of God. How do I know that? 2 Corinthians 5 and 7. It says to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. We lost one of our 
wonderful members this week, Mrs. Hannah. And I conducted her service here. And she had suffered for a long, long time. And when she closed her eyes, she was with the Lord in heaven, no longer in paradise. Now, I told that little boy a couple of things that day in my two, three-minute little conversation with him about what happens when people die. I said, the soul and spirit goes to heaven immediately. And it doesn't go in the ground. We're going to put your grandfather's body in the ground, but we're not going to put him. We're not going to put his soul, his spirit, his personhood. We're not going to put that in the ground. Another thing I want to tell you, little boy, is that he's not going to be a ghost. He's not going to be flitting around the earth, haunting people and all that silly stuff. He's going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, absent from the body and present with the Lord. I wish I had that good a news for the unsaved, but I don't. And if you've never been saved, you've got a problem, my friend, because you're one heartbeat away from torment. You said, torment? Uh, Jesus didn't clean out the torment side. And the Bible doesn't say that unsaved people go to hell today. It teaches that they go to torment. Not a big difference, but a technicality that I want you to be aware of as a well-taught Christian. And so when an unbeliever, a Christ rejecter dies, their spirit and soul goes to torments, and they're going to remain there for a long time yet until they're sentenced to the lake of fire. And I'll show you that in a moment. Now, what happens when we die? Well, if you're saved, your spirit goes immediately to heaven. If not, you go to torments. And someday Jesus is going to come in the air. We call it the rapture. I don't know when it will occur. I wish it did, but I don't. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Bible describes the rapture. Verse 16, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God will sound. And it's going to be so loud that it wakes the dead because it says the dead are going to rise first. And then the believers who are still alive at the time of the rapture, if they are still here on the earth, remain here on the earth, they will be caught up together with them in the clouds. In fact, the term rapture is the Latin term for the two words translated in your Bible, caught up. And so the people who are alive on the earth will be caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You see, at the rapture, Jesus never really comes completely to the earth. He comes in the air. And the people that are sleeping in the grave who were believers, your loved ones and friends, their bodies will be resurrected and they will go up to heaven. The people who have died and are with the Lord right now, they will come back and their bodies will be resurrected and they too will be caught up, if you will, sort of a big U-turn, if I'm understanding it right from the scripture. And then we will be with the Lord there in forever, it says at the end of verse number 17, we will forever 
forever be with the Lord. And this is the comfort that Christians have. Comfort one another with these words. Meanwhile, and when we get there, it's going to be important what happens. We don't hear people talk about it. I don't want to sound irreverent or trite or silly, but you know what's going to happen when the rapture get home with the Lord? The Lord's going to throw a party. He's going to throw a big feast, and it's going to last for the better part of seven years, and he's going to give rewards to all the people who served him faithfully down here on the earth. If you serve faithfully in the choir, you're going to get a reward for that because you get a reward even if you give a glass of cold water in Jesus' name. And so you faithful choir members and Sunday school teachers and ushers and witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ, every Christian that did anything with the proper heart motive trying to serve the Lord at work or wherever you may be, then you're going to get your reward during that period of time after the rapture, but before the second coming. The marriage supper of the land is lamb is what the Bible calls it. And he will reward his people for their work while they were on earth. Meanwhile, on the earth, things are going on. Christians have been raptured out. And events continue on the earth, except that it's going to be the worst time in all of recorded history. There's going to be wars. There's going to be hurricanes and tornadoes and cataclysmic events of nature. There's even going to be meteorites that hit the earth. We keep hearing them warning us about them. You know, there's RX-223, a meteorite so big, and it's going to come within 200,000 miles of the earth. We hear that stuff on the news. Well, someday some of those are going to come home. And the Bible even gives them names, stars and wormwood and all that kind of stuff. And they're going to hit the earth, and it's going to be cataclysmic type events that will be occurring here. Diseases, floods, everything bad that we can think about because once the Christians leave, it's like the Lord sort of leaves the earth behind and says, okay, let's let sin now take its course. Let's just let sin bring forth its own fruit. You rejected me all those 6,000 years of history that I gave you. Now, you're on your own. But you know what? The spiritual nature abhors a vacuum, and they don't really last on their own very well because Satan comes and he steps in. And during the great tribulation, Satan is going to have his heyday. In fact, you know what Satan's going to do? He's going to set up a man that he empowers and fills with his evil spirit that we know in the Bible as Antichrist. And he's going to control the governments and the systems of the world, and it's going to be horrendous. Satan will completely control the planet through the Antichrist. We don't talk enough about Satan, probably, his evil. I don't even know how many Christians really believe there's such a thing as a personal devil. We pray here on Wednesday night. I have a prayer partner. My prayer partner is my grandson, Monroe. And he leaves his mom and he comes down here. And at first I thought, this is kind of strange, the preacher getting down here and praying with you. 
By the way, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to pray with my grandson and hope that he'll remember those nights when he prayed with granddaddy. And praying with Monroe is a blast, I'm going to tell you. He has this little habit. He doesn't say, dear Lord, dear or, Lord Jesus. He says, God. And then he stops and thinks. And not long ago, we were praying on Wednesday night, and Monroe said, God, I hate the devil. I hate the devil. I just want you to kill the devil. He's causing a lot of trouble down here right now. <laughs> I said, no theologian ever said it better. That wraps it all. He's causing a lot of trouble down here right now, isn't he? Isn't that true? Amen. Well, you ain't seen anything yet. He's going to cause more trouble. You wait till the great tribulation. You don't want to be here. You want to make sure that you're ready to go in the rapture. Well, after about seven years, Jesus is going to return to the earth. Let's read about it. It's in Revelation chapter 19. You know the tragic thing. So many Christians today don't know the difference in the rapture and the Lord's return. They don't study their Bibles and seek to really be serious students of God's Word. So we go to Revelation chapter 19. And this is obviously different from his coming in the air. It's not describing the same two events. So in Revelation chapter 19, verse number 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, with capitals. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God and the armies which were in heaven. That's us. All those armies of the saints of all time. Now, Old Testament, New Testament saints. All the people that were raptured out seven years ago, the armies that were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he will smite the nations. Notice, we don't fight the armies of heaven. He takes care of it all himself. He will smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has on his vesture his clothing, and on his thigh a name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back. The saints of heaven... You and I will be with him on that day. And then will occur the greatest battle in all the history of mankind. It's called the Battle of Armageddon, the war, the battle to end all battles. You can read the description of it there in the rest of chapter 19. Armageddon, the whole world coming together in the northern part of Israel and fighting on that plain of Megiddo, and the Bible says that the blood will run to the horse's bridle, meaning blood will flow maybe a yard or more in depth. 
as all the nations of the world are gathered together there in that cataclysmic battle of all history. Then after Jesus defeats Satan and his armies, we come to chapter 20, and he begins to reign. Revelation 20, verse number 1, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit. Hey, I've already talked about that, didn't I? That's the pit that couldn't be crossed over in Luke 16, and a great chain was in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. Monroe's prayer got answered. The devil is bound. The first thing that the Lord Jesus, <clears throat> the first thing the Lord Jesus does is he binds the devil. You can't have the millennium if you got the devil loose on the earth, can you? And so the Lord Jesus puts him into that compartment and leaves him there for a thousand years. Verse 3, cast him into the bottomless pit. He shuts him up and sets a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more. What a phrase, pregnant with meaning for us today. Who is deceiving the world today? Well, it tells you there. He can deceive the nations no more till the thousand years are fulfilled. And after that, he will be loosed a little season to demonstrate to the world that he is truly evil. And in verse 4, the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, I saw thrones and they that sat upon them. And judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded, martyrs, for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received the mark of the beast upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And that thousand years, we refer to it as the millennial reign. The Lord Jesus comes back, defeats evil at the battle of Armageddon, binds Satan, throws him into the bottomless pit at the center of the earth, and sets up his kingdom where he rules and reigns for a thousand years. All through history, men have dreamed of peace. We've never had it for very long at all. We'll have it for a thousand years. All through history, men have dreamed of justice. We say justice for all. I noticed on my garbage can, there's the seal of the city of Florence. And what does it say on the city seal? Justice for all. Sorry, there's not justice for all equally in Florence or anywhere else on this earth. But there will be one day justice, absolute justice, Peace and justice will roll over this world like the water in the sea. And we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. What happens at the end of that thousand years? We're talking about what happens to the dead. When they, what happens to people when they die, saved and unsaved? Well, if you'll look with me in chapter 20 and verse 11, we'll skip down there. Let's start in verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And there they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
And I saw a great white throne. And so we call this the judgment of the great white throne. And him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was no place for them to hide. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books are open, the records of their deeds. And another book was open, the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the books according to their works. See, Christians are not judged for whether we go to heaven or hell according to our works because we're under God's grace because we receive Christ. But those who rejected Christ are judged by their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. People that fell overboard, people that were eaten by sea sharks and whales or whatever. Death and hell. Death is Hades in the original there. So it's delivered up the dead that's in them that have been there since the time of the rich man. He'll be in that number. And they will be judged according to their works. And then death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. That's what we typically call hell. And in the future, at the great white throne, the people who were unbelievers and Christ rejectors are sentenced for eternity. This is the second death. Note verse 15, my friend. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Continue in chapter 21 because we're at the last point on our outline, and it's eternity, future. Revelation 21 and 1 I saw a new heaven, a renovated heaven, because it says over there that in 1 Peter that the earth will be renovated by fire. So John said, now I see that new heaven and that new earth. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and now there's no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, it's called coming down from God out of heaven, 1,400 miles square, according to other places in the Bible. A cube, 1,400 miles high, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles deep. And I saw it coming down from God out of heaven, adorned or prepared as a bride for her husband. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And those of you who have lost loved ones, here's our wonderful hope. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And what a world God has prepared for us. No more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things are all passed away. God will renovate the earth. The heavenly city, the new Jerusalem will come down, and we will live with him, not playing harps and floating on clouds, but we will serve him, the Bible says, 
forever and ever throughout all of eternity. That's what happens after people die. A little boy, if you were here in my imagination, I wish I'd had time to tell you all of that. That's what you can expect when people die. And if we know the Lord, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful expectation and experience. And if we reject Jesus Christ and live wickedly and turn our backs on what he says, it's a very dim prospect. One other thing while you have your Bible open there. I always give invitations, and the Bible always gives invitations. Do you know the Bible says about 800 times to people to come, 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 come? The last invitation in the Bible is in verse 17 in chapter 22. This is the last time people are invited to Jesus. The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit convicting, and the bride, that's the church, say, come, So the church this morning extends you an invitation. The Holy Spirit's working in your heart saying, you need to come. And then it says, and let him that is a thirst. Anybody here today thirsty for God in your life, a real knowledge of God and a real relationship with him? Let him that is thirsty come, and whosoever will, that's Anybody, whosoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely. The last invitation that God ever extends is right there. Stand to your feet with me quietly and reverently, if you will.